You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton & Company. This morning, it's just me, and we're talking strictly benefits today with a little bit of um, touching on the, the stimulus package that looks like it might be passed, so we'll discuss that briefly. I'm working with employers on a daily basis that are wanting to be compliant, so that's my role here at Bolton. I can have these practical discussions with employers because I'm not giving legal advice. So, of course, today, anything I say should not be construed as legal advice. In no way am I doing that. The information, is sometimes it comes in very rapidly and some of the guidance might change or maybe there's some further clarification that comes up. And I say that just so everyone knows that go to the source to make sure that you're getting the most up-to-date information. That was very key in the very beginning of COVID or towards the midway with FSCRA and all of the different leaves because there was so much clarification being put out on a daily basis. The goal today is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. It seems that HR leaders, business owners, executives, they want validation on what they've read or that second set of eyes, if you will, and guidance where, frankly, none may exist. So the hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance for you. So as I mentioned, today we are discussing benefit-related topics. We won't be going over the Cal OSHA's new COVID-19 emergency temporary standards. We will not be going over that topic. Uh, so if you were hoping to hear something on that, that's not included in our discussion today as it is not benefits related. Let's get started. And in case you didn't know, this is a podcast as well. So we record it and then we upload it into iTunes. You can review or listen to all of the past episodes. You can do that right now, starting with episode one, where Bob Braddocky was our guest. So feel free to listen to those at your leisure. And that is on the Apple podcast. And you would just type in or search for Kamayo's Compliance Talk. We're going to review calendar year FSAs because I've gotten so many requests regarding, you know, reimbursing employees their contributions because of how hard it's been to, to predict medical expenses this year. And so employees are, are not being able to spend down their funds for calendar year FSA. So I'm going to talk about that. State reporting. I would think that most of you have been approached by your payroll vendors with uh, an offer of assistance to the state reporting, and that's due to individual mandates. So we want to discuss that. CARES Act deadlines. You may be wondering, because it's the end of the plan year, or excuse me, the end of the calendar year, you may be wondering what deadlines are expiring, is COVID testing still covered, et cetera. So we will go into details, and then we will talk about, uh, we'll do our monthly segment, Toilet Paper Talk, a review of things that have become incredibly relevant, like toilet paper. 
So the end of 2020 is near. And because of that, I want to talk about certain things that are very relevant right now, one being the calendar year FSAs, the state reporting, the CARES Act deadlines, and of course, the calendar, excuse me, the toilet paper talk. I put together a, uh, myself and my marketing team put together a YouTube video that you can listen to where it's about two and a half minutes where I describe in detail calendar year FSA plans. You know, I discuss whether or not you can give back or refund an employee's contributions, if that's permissible. But I also discuss in detail what can you do with the the forfeited funds at the end of a plan year. Because you may not know this, but the forfeited funds at the end of the plan year, there are regulations that provide guidance for employers on what they can and cannot do with those forfeited funds. So we want to talk about that in, in detail as a reminder. Now the bottom line is whether or not you listen to the YouTube video the bottom line is that you cannot refund employee contributions into the FSA in the way that they paid it in. That is not permissible. To do so would put your plan out of compliance and you would be subject to potentially penalties and fees and maybe even be disqualified from having a Section 125 plan. I was hoping to see something in the next stimulus package that would address FSA plans and the funds that might be left in it. Uh, it does not look like that's going to be in this stimulus package, so that's very disappointing. And we've not heard anything from the IRS that they're going to release guidance and give any type of relief to the participants who's, who may have to forfeit their funds. That's an update there. With regards to ACA reporting to the state, again, this is tied back to the individual mandate. So California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, D.C., and Vermont all have individual mandates. And as a refresher, if you remember, the federal government had an individual mandate as well that came along with the ACA that if you did not have, as an individual, if you did not have medical insurance, you could be and would be penalized on your taxes. Well, that is no longer existent at the federal level, but certain states enacted their own individual mandate that was very similar to the federal mandate, California being one of those states. And because of this individual mandate, California needs a mechanism to track who has insurance and who does not. So that way they know who to penalize. And in order to track that, the state of California is requiring the ACA reporting to actually be sent to the state as well as the federal government. For self-insured plans, so if you're a self-insured medical plan, as an organization, you will have to figure out how to do the ACA reporting and how to, how to make sure the state receives it. And that's where your payroll vendor could come in handy because they are the ones who could, um, who could help aid in that reporting. For fully insured plans in California, the carrier should be responsible for reporting this information on your behalf. So if you have a fully insured medical plan, 
the carrier should be responsible for reporting on your behalf. It's always a good idea to get your carrier's response in writing to ensure that they will be doing so. I can tell you I've checked with a few carriers here, Blue Shield, Kaiser, Cigna. They've all confirmed that they will be reporting on behalf of their fully insured medical plan. So that is we can breathe a sigh of relief that you do not have to take action if you have a fully insured medical plan. We're going to review extensions in detail later on today. But let me say first up front that FFCRA is set to expire at the end of this year. There has been no extension for that. We've not seen or heard of any indication that they will extend FFCRA. So it appears that the December 31st, 2020 deadline is still in play. The CARES Act has a few deadlines, none of them which are the end of this year, but I will give you some details on that. And then any of the sick leaves, we've heard no extensions for those sick leaves that may be expiring to the end of this year. So in a nutshell, really we've not heard any of the deadlines being extended. The stimulus package. So Congress has to pass something by the end of this week, and, and this is Wednesday, so I'm sure you've seen the headlines every day, every couple hours, you know, what's happening? Are they talking to each other? Are, you know, are both sides coming to an agreement? And what, what's the give and take there? What we see so far, which is very well subject to change to the final bill that's passed, is that the enhanced unemployment benefits is definitely going to be a part of the, the stimulus package if it's passed this week. It looks like it's going to be for an additional $300 per week for 15 weeks. The extension of the Paycheck Protection Program seems to be a part of the stimulus package as well. Funding for small businesses, funding for schools to remain open or to operate, uh, vaccines, funding for the vaccines and for coronavirus testing all seems to be in the stimulus package. Also funds for to keep food programs going, uh, funds to help child care providers stay open or, or, or open their doors, transportation, and stimulus checks may not be included, but as early as this morning, looks like stimulus checks now could very well be included. <laughs> Although two days ago, I would have said, well, looks like they're, they're not going to come to an agreement on those stimulus checks, but today... It looks like, well, they, they very well may be. So that's where we are right now with that stimulus package. Congress does not have a final bill, bill, so you will not see any details on this other than those uh, headlines. If, you're, if you were to Google this, for example, nothing is final. I'll leave you with that. Nothing is final. And what is final may be different than what I just discussed right now. Someone asked me to, to go over the difference between a self-insured medical plan versus a fully insured medical plan. So a fully insured medical plan makes up about 80% of California fully insured medical plans. So it, it, chances are you have a fully insured medical plan, but it is one where you as the employer pay a fixed cost per month, which your employee might share in that cost, but you pay a fixed cost per month. And no matter what your claims are, 
you always pay that same fixed cost for the uh, 12 months of your uh, plan year. On a self-insured medical plan, there is no fixed cost because you are self-insuring. So as an organization, you've taken on the risk of those claims. So if the claims are low one month, then your bill for medical insurance is lower. And if your claims are high, then you have to pay those claims. And so there's a lot of variance there and you take on more risk when you're self-insured. All right, so we have a question about the FSA and my next slide is on FSA. So I will stop and address that one. What are the, the question is, what are the options for an employee on a leave regarding flexible spending accounts? Does it just stop or can they continue to contribute even if those funds are after tax? Well, it, 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 when a person goes on leave with a flexible spending account, there are a few things that can happen. One, the, there is a qualifying event that is created, so the employee could simply drop from the FSA plan and stop making any contributions or they can pay contributions as they go, or they can prepay their contributions while they're out on leave, or you can collect it when they come back. So there are those three options. And typically with your leave packet, you'll want to include a, some sort of document where they acknowledge whether or not they're gonna prepay, pay as they go, or you're gonna allow a catch-up contribution when they return to work. And it's up to you as the employer if you want to allow a catch-up contribution. So this will be happen when an employee goes on leave regarding flexible spending account. You'll just really need to determine how are they going to pay their contributions while they're out. The regulations state that if they are not making contributions or an arrangement for them to make it when they come back, then they can't use their FSA. So if the employee says, well, I'm not gonna make any contributions, then what you'll need to do is you'll need to drop them from the flexible spending account and offer them COBRA if there are funds left in that account. So it's a good segue into the details of the calendar year FSA plans. Now I did give you the link in the first slide where you can listen to me discuss the, the, the details. I wanna go over it a little bit here. First, at this time, an employer may not give the employee back any prior contributions outside of that normal reimbursement process. So if I incur a claim and then I go online and I submit for reimbursement, that's a normal reimbursement process. Or if I use my FSA card to pay for um, an over-the-counter drug, that's a normal reimbursement process. So if an employee comes to you and says, you know, look, I didn't, I didn't spend, I couldn't spend my funds and I, I don't know what to do. I've got a thousand dollars left in my account. I want you to give me my money back. Unfortunately, per IRS rules, you may not give the employee back any prior contributions. And I, that is, that is frustrating to the employee and to you as the employer, because your employee might be upset by this. Just unfortunately, that is the rule. And until or if the IRS releases any type of guidance that gives any flexibility, these rules remain in place. A lot of employers have asked me, have I heard 
of the IRS, you know, gearing up to do so to give this flexibility. I have not. They've been very, very quiet about that. If they do release it, it's going to be a surprise to us all. As far as we know, there's nothing on the horizon that would help solve this dilemma. With the dilemma, of course, being the fact that the employee has funds in their account that they're not going to be able to spend because they just did not incur any, they didn't incur the amount of claims or expenses they thought they would this year. Another important thing to remember is that there are rules that govern what an employer can do with forfeited funds at the end of an FSA plan year. So for example, uh, if you look at your FSA balance sheet or your TPA sends it to you or you pull a report and it says, oh, you have $5,000 in forfeited funds from your participants, the employer cannot put that into their bank and say, oh, great, we profited $5,000. There are rules on what you can do with that money. Amounts that are forfeited by the, all the participants um, or will need to be redistributed to participants in a certain manner, used for a premium holiday. So that's used to reduce the required salary reductions elected for the next year or used for the administration of the plan. So I'll give you a few examples here. So one option you have with those forfeited funds is you can give it back to the participants, but you have to do it with no regard to the participant's balance or their original contribution. So what that means is it must be distributed uniformly. Let's look at some easy math. Let's say you had 25 FSA participants and you have $1,000 left in forfeited funds. So let's say some had underspent their account, but some had even uh, had, had used every single dollar in their account. It does not matter. You have to use all 25 participants and give them back the money with no regards to how the money was spent or their balance or their original contribution. So you would just take that $1,000, divide it by 25, and then you could give back $40 to each participant in the FSA plan. That is one way how you can give it back to participants. But you, can, you cannot do it with any regard to what the actual participant had contributed um, in the prior year. You can also use the forfeited fund to, funds to reduce the next plan year's salary reductions for those FSA participants. So remember that $40 that you might give back to each participant in a uniform manner? Well, you can take that $40 and let's say all 25 came back and contributed to the FSA this year, you can take that $40 and reduce their salary reductions by that $40. We call that essentially kind of a premium holiday is the, the term that we use. Again, you have to give that premium holiday regardless of how much the individual actually forfeited. And without regard to what they contributed and didn't spend, it has to be uniform across the FSA participants. Or the other one is, the, the other option you have to do with those forfeited funds is to use it to defray administrative costs of running the plan, which would include your non-discrimination testing and your TPA fees. 
and any other fees your TPA may have charged throughout the year. Maybe your TPA charged a fee to create the plan document. You can use those funds to defray those costs as well. The question on the forfeited funds within an FSA, can you use the funds to cover the salary of the employee overseeing the plan? Yes, you could in theory. There's enough, let me say this, there's enough gray area in those regulations where you could use it. But you would have to be very careful about how you would allocate what percentage of their salary. So, for example, if you have someone in HR, uh, you would not be able to use 100% of their salary, of course, because it, it, in no way would it be reasonable that they would spend 100% of their time. Let's say you have a TPA who does the administration for you. Well, the amount that you can use of someone's salary would then have to be even lower because that person wouldn't would be de dedicating a, a lesser amount of time than someone who did not have a TPA in place. But yes, in theory that you, you could, I would caution you to make sure that if you're doing it that way, to be very diligent in your calculations and to show your math. That way, if you're ever audited, you can show your math and feel good about, about uh, what numbers you've used. So when I asked when I projected the supplemental uh, un un unemployment payments to begin, I think that they will most likely not have, want any gap to exist. And the current benefits expire December 26th, or that will be the last payments of the enhanced unemployment. So I would say that it'll pick right up, uh, it'll pick off, pick up where it left off. So I would expect that to happen would be December 26th. So there's no gap in payments, but we'll, we'll know soon enough. Probably they'll pass the bill on Friday is what I'm thinking, or they will have to. And then, uh, then we'll have time to read over it in the weekend. And then Monday we'll know all the details. Someone asked, outside of this exceptional year, <laughs> that's one way to put it, are there regulations around how an employer can use the forfeited FSA funds they collect? Yes, in fact, what I just spoke about, those are the normal regulations. The What I just discussed on how you can give back the funds or what you can do with forfeited funds, that's not specific to this year because of the pandemic. Those are actually the normal rules. Well, I'll make that very clear. There, are all, there have always been rules that govern what an employer can do with forfeited funds at the end of the FSA plan year. All right, so we will move on to a few other items that I've heard this week, this past week. So remember, this segment is toilet paper talk. So really what it is is I'm taking all of the relevant issues that I've spoken to employers about or reviewed from last week or the last couple weeks, and I've, I've want to discuss it because I, I want you to know you're, you're not alone. If you're thinking this or if you haven't thought about this, just know that these are the topics that I'm hearing about most often these past few weeks. One is life insurance conversions. And the reason I'm hearing the, about this is because it is um, common that employers are renewing January 1, and as they renew, they're also changing plans, and one is they might be changing life insurance carriers. And when you change a life insurance carrier, you have to be very careful about those who are not actively at work. 
And, but we need to back up even further from there when we talk about those that are not actively at work. So essentially, we're talking about someone who is on a leave. In the state of California and many other states, there is a law that states that if an employee has life insurance on the day that they terminate, the employer has 15 days to send the employee a life insurance conversion notice. Okay? That is a law. The employer has 15 days from the coverage termination date to send an employee a life insurance conversion notice or a conversion rights notice. That's what we typically call it. And, and so sometimes we see that employers are not aware of that and they're not sending it or the employer might say, oh, my, my insurance carrier is doing it. Well, what we found is that most insurance carriers like um, Sun Life, MetLife, Guardian, whoever your life insurance provider is, most of them do not do this on your behalf. So that's a little bit of a common myth. They do not do it on your behalf. And also, most life insurance contracts will not allow the employer to keep someone on a life insurance plan if they are out on leave. Most contracts say that the, the most life insurance contracts state that you must terminate the employee the day they go out on leave. And once you terminate them, then that triggers a conversion rights notice that you have to send within 15 days of their coverage termination date. And the employee then has the option to convert or report their life insurance policy if they wish to do that. But what happens is employers aren't aware that they have to do that. So they keep someone on leave. They keep them on the active life insurance plan which may be not permissible per your plan document, but, but it still happens because employers aren't aware. You keep someone on the life insurance plan, so then when you go to change life insurance carriers, the new carrier does not want you to, it will not cover the employees that are not actively at work. So it's called the actively at work provision. Someone asked, does it matter what type of leave for the life insurance? No, it does not. And this is a great question because you might say, oh, no, FMLA rules state that we have to keep their life insurance in place. But FMLA rules say group health insurance. That is the language that they use. And if you dig deeper into what group health insurance is, it's medical, dental, and vision. So FMLA, FMLA regulations do not mandate that an employer keep life insurance in place because life insurance is not considered group health as defined by FMLA regulations. So it does not matter what type of leave for the most part. But let me say this, it depends on your carrier contract. I'm speaking generally. Generally, the life insurance carrier has a carrier contract that states you must terminate someone uh, the day that they go out on leave, but some contracts might allow you to keep someone on the life insurance for a certain amount of weeks. You need to know what it says in your life insurance contract. Someone asked, what is the minimum leave that requires termination? So I just spoke generally. And to answer that question, I want you to go back to your life insurance carrier contract or your life insurance EOC, 
And if you don't have that, you can just reach out to your broker contact, ask them to get that for you. And then read the provision that states um, what happens when someone goes out on leave. There will be several paragraphs and it will point to what, to how long you can keep someone on the plan when they go on leave. So that's just a reminder of the life insurance conversions and the conversion rights notice. If you're changing life insurance carriers, be very sensitive to that actively active at work provision because those who are on leave will not be covered by your new life insurance carrier. So if you're changing life insurance carriers starting January 1, please reach out to uh, your broker partner and ask them what you need to do to ensure that those on leave are given the option to convert their life insurance policy. Someone asked if life insurance is terminated and the employee returns to work, can they be reinstated without a new waiting period? That's really up to the carrier. So you'll, and it's specific to each carrier. And some carriers may even give you an option to waive the waiting period if someone has, let's say, only been out for, for 13 weeks or six months or so. So that question can only be answered by looking at your life insurance contract or reaching out to your life insurance rep. It's going to be specific to each carrier. This is for group term life and supplemental life. So the state of California says you have to send the conversion rights notice whenever a conversion privilege exists. And having worked with and written many life insurance policies, I can tell you that group term life and your supplemental life both are going to include a conversion privilege 99% of the time. So yes, it applies to both group term and supplemental life. Someone asked, does this only apply if we change carriers for life insurance? No, the conversion rights notice must be sent to all terminated participants within 15 days of their coverage termination date. That is not specific to changing carriers. That is just in general. That's a, that is something that should be in all of your exit packets for those that had life insurance prior to termination. So we discussed the new state reporting that the state of California is imposing on employers, and that's, that's coming up soon. The deadlines are very similar to your ACA reporting for the federal government. And you probably have had your payroll vendor reach out to you and offer to assist with state reporting. If you are a fully insured medical plan, your carrier is supposed to be reporting on your behalf, so no action would be needed. I can tell you for sure that in writing, Blue Shield, Cigna, and Kaiser have confirmed that they are reporting on behalf of their fully insured clients. If you have a carrier other than that, please get that answer in writing. We just want to make sure the carriers are doing what the law states they should be doing because that's not always the case. So we want to have that in writing. If you are a self-insured medical plan or if you have a self-insured medical plan, you will probably want to take up the payroll vendor on their offer of assistance because you will need to report on your company's behalf the carrier or, or the TPA will not do that for you, at least not without an extra charge. So if you're a self-insured medical plan and you have not 
started the ball rolling on state reporting, please do that as soon as possible. If you're a fully insured medical plan, the carrier will do that reporting on your behalf. So great news there. All right, so I've gotten a couple of emails asking about the CARES Act. And the, the question is always, are the deadlines going to be extended? I know we're coming up on the end of the planned year. And I had to stop and think about this one. I'm like, the deadlines? Oh, well, the CARES Act doesn't have any deadlines um, that ex expire on at the end of this year, except for one. Um, so I wanted to kind of make that clear to everyone in case, in case it was confusing. So for example, example, I think the most important one that we're all concerned about is COVID testing. The CARES Act ensured that COVID testing had to be covered at 100% when it was deemed medically necessary. So what's medically necessary simply means symptoms are showing uh, or there's been a known exposure. So the CARES Act made it so that COVID testing was covered at 100% when it was medically necessary or when it is medically necessary. That expires at the end of the public health emergency, not at the end of this year, the end of the public health emergency. So then we say, okay, when is the end of the public health emergency? Well, the HHS renews the public health emergency every 90 days. They just renewed it at the end of October. And the new expiration date for the public health emergency is January 21st, although, they could very well extend it another 90 days because it's up for renewal every 90 days. So stay tuned uh, for January 21st is what we're looking for. We wanna see the HHS renew that at least one more time. And, and I have a feeling that they, that they will. Because uh, as, as we all know, um, especially here in, in Southern California, COVID is, is not going away, has not gone away yet. All right, the CARES Act also built a provision in that high deductible health plans can provide first dollar coverage for telehealth without jeopardizing the HSA component. That expires January 1 of 2022. Here's one that was so wonderful. We were all so happy to hear this back into the FSA eligible expenses. Health FSAs, HRAs, and HSAs can now reimburse over-the-counter medicine and menstrual care products, that's permanent. So there, that does not expire. That was a permanent change that came out of the CARES Act. For COVID vaccines, the CARES Act made it so that COVID vaccines would be covered as preventive care, so covered at 100%. And the carriers and the group health plans have 15 days after the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends it the group health plan has 15 days to ensure that it is covered at 100%. That's permanent. That does not have an expiration date. The one that does expire at the end of this year, I did not see many employers take advantage of it, but because of the CARES Act, the employer can pay for the employee student loans tax-free up to 5250. That, that payment has to be made by December 31st of this year. Someone asked if the covered testing, uh, for is it for all employees or just the one that's exposed? Now, the CARES COVID testing is it does not cover workplace testing. 
it only covers um, testing when an employee, when an individual, individual is ha, has any symptoms or any known exposure. So uh, it looks like you're asking that question from the lens of a workplace, um, but it's really an individual uh, lens that we need to look at that. So if I call my group health plan and I, and I say, I have symptoms or my colleague tested um, positive or my friend tested positive, then then the doctor will deem it as medically necessary and it will be covered at 100%. A workplace exposure is handled very differently than if, you know, if I have symptoms or if my friend had it. Maybe I went to, um, I play volleyball, so maybe I went to the volleyball court and one of my friends later on was, was uh, tested positive, then I would be covered by the CARES Act. That would be covered at 100%. Great question here. Can we get reimbursed for COVID testing through your HSA? Absolutely. It's uh, funny you ask that. I have an HSA. I've had many COVID tests the past eight months, and I always reimburse myself through my HSA uh, for any out-of-pocket expenses. But I can tell you, though, I have Kaiser, and I submit my receipts to Kaiser. Um, and they've paid for my COVID testing without question. Um, all I do is I send them the receipts and I write a little note about why the testing was required and um, they've paid my claim. So submit to your insurance prior to using your HSA because your insurance may very well pay. But if you do have out-of-pocket costs, they are going to be, uh, can be run through your HSA for sure. All right, someone asked about COVID supplemental paid sick leave. Is it still set to expire December 31st? I don't know off the top of my head if that's the actual, uh, that was the date it's set to expire, but let's assume that it is. There has been no uh, talk of an extension of the expiration date. In fact, there's been no talk of any extension of expiration dates other than the unemployment benefits. But as soon as we, it, let me say, if we hear anything here at Bolton, if I hear anything or any any uh, laws are passed extending those dates, we will be sure to distribute that information as soon as possible. I have not heard any news that the student loan tax-free benefit will be extended through 2021. I have not heard that. All right, so vaccines seems to be a hot topic. Of course, it would be. I was, I don't know about you all, but when um, the vaccines came to LA, I felt so hopeful. I guess it's the word. <laughs> I felt hopeful. So um, I'm sure that you've heard about that. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time speaking about the vaccines and answering some common COVID-19 vaccine questions. So, for example, who's, who will be eligible to get the vaccine? And, and in case you haven't seen or read the news articles, it's really the CDC is going to oversee the distribution of the vaccine throughout the U.S., and they make recommendations about which groups of people should get it first. But then the state officials step in. They use the CDC guidelines to decide which groups will get the vaccine first in their particular state. I can tell you that the state of California and the federal government are on the same page. The California has already announced that it's going to be healthcare personnel 
and residents of long-term care facilities that will get it first. That's in line with CDC recommendations. Then the question is, will there, will there be a cost to members for the vaccine? No, there will not be. The vaccine dose, doses that are purchased through tax dollars, uh, which is stimulus packages, those are required by the federal government to be given at no cost. But as we discussed, the CARES Act already ensured that these vaccines would be considered preventive care under the HHS guidelines. And therefore, if it's preventive care, as, as you know, it's covered at 100%. Then the question becomes, well, as the employer, is, well, if I'm a self-insured plan, which means you pay your own medical claims as an organization, you pay the medical claims because you're self-insuring, will there be a cost to the employer for this vaccine? The vaccine doses that are purchased with um, what we call Operation Warp Speed, which is a government program, those have to be given at no cost because the government is essentially subsidizing those vaccines. So there won't be any cost passed to employers for those vaccine doses that are um, conducted under Operation Warp Speed. Where applicable, the claims for administrating the vaccine to individuals will accumulate to an employer's utilization and could impact future renewal rates. But that's only for those preventive care, renewal, preventive care um, doses, not for the ones the government pays for. Someone asked uh, another question about student loan payments. And do I believe that the student loan payments will be discontinued as the new administration will be erasing student loan debt? Um, I, you know, I probably don't have the expertise and I'm, af I'm afraid this, this one, it, it might be a little sensitive. I, I don't see student loan debt going away. It sounds awesome if it did for a lot of people. I don't see it going away. I do know that the that the stimulus package, there is talk of extending the, the forbearance period for student loan payments. I do know that that is, that was in one of the revisions of the stimulus package. So we may see where they are going to um, extend the forbearance. I've not heard any talk about erasing student loan debt, or at least not any uh, any talk that's been backed up by any proposed bills or legislation. All right, so before I leave you today, I wanna to give you um, an overview of some resources you might wanna check out. If you haven't subscribed to our Bolton blog, you might wanna do that because that's where I will release any information that uh, comes out regarding any deadlines or anything applicable to employee benefits, any new legislation, I'm going to send out a, a, a blog and also a compliance alert. So you may want to subscribe there to that blog. And for benefit-related questions, if we have any Bolton clients on the line, you should contact your team. Feel free to do that. And then for Bolton clients, Think HR has several different sample forms and information. If you're familiar with Think HR, um, please log in and see what's new there. 
for employment law matters, talk about fisherphillips.com. It is a great site. They are attorneys here in LA. I work closely with a few of them. They are fantastic. They were really on the front lines of making sure they were giving out information and giving away their expertise without charging. And they've been a great partner of ours. They have a site with um, tons of information, including facts. They have an employer resource center. They have a California resource center. They have legal alerts, federal alerts, all around employment law matters. They have a, Calif as I mentioned, they have a California COVID-19 resource center. You want to check that out. It includes a Cal OSHA emergency standard checklist and the top, an article on the top nine things employers need to know about Cal OSHA's new emergency COVID-19 standard. The name of the law firm is Fisher Phillips. And you can see there is www.fisherphillips.com. I cannot say enough about this firm. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can put you in touch with them or if you want to peruse their website first to see what type of information you can glean or that you might be able to use at, at no cost, that sounds good as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Bye, everyone.